Hi, this is Maya Thomas. I am the DSC podcast producer of our first ever series. And I just wanted to give you a quick rundown of DSC as an organization before we get started. So DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialized training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. Our focus is on helping providers to survive and thrive in the NDIS. And our purpose is better outcomes for people with disability. We take a different approach to our work. We focus on what works best for you, not us. We're real people and we respect that you are too. And we challenge what needs to change. These podcasts bring a new dimension to our work and our commitment to be fun, frank and future facing. So we hope you enjoy listening to them as much as we did putting them together. Hello, welcome to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations. I'm Roland Northell, the host of the program, and my trusty sidekick is Evie. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. We're talking with really interesting people across a series of six podcasts, and this is our final one. And you always hope that you're going to end on a high note, and we did. We nailed it. Uh, John Baker is is a really interesting guy. Worked at very, very senior levels of transformational change. Sounds wanky already, but it's not. And what did you think of it? I found it great. I mean, John's has such interesting experience and it was really funny to see him flip around on us, our questions about what worked in the UK. I won't spoil the answer. So over to John. Hello, this is a podcast. I could do the same joke again. Disability Services Consulting. <laughs> We're really excited. Do not keep that in. <laughs> Let's roll. And our guest is John Baker. Also known as Dad's Only Friend. <laughs> No, I have another one. It's true. We're really excited to have John here. John's got a stack of experience from the UK and more recently with the NDI in Australia. John began his career as a social worker, as, as did I. And it's interesting that you've made that journey now from social worker to management consultant. Mm. Tell us a bit about the journey and how you ended up there, John. How did I transition into being a management consultant? consultant? I think... Um, I mean, I'd love to say there was a sophisticated plan involved in all of that, but but no, I've never I've never really had one. So um, I, I kind of um, went through my career as 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 a social worker and really enjoyed um, uh, engaging with people and, and and actually engaging in the change of how services were configured, the introduction of well, consumer directed care. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, I actually. Uh, started becoming more interested in how organizations work uh, mm -hmm. uh, and actually looking at some of the huge mistakes that were happening mm -hmm. within organizations as I was uh, working as a social worker. Yeah, and, well, one of the things we wanted to touch on right mm -hmm. from the start was the whole UK thing and and whether Australia has an inferiority complex. <laughs> you know, everybody we bring over from the UK is the great expert or the USA is, mm. is some expert that can tell us what we're doing wrong. Mm. And we're often told the UK experience before the NDIS was about individualised funding. Do we have an inferiority complex? Uh, are we receiving significant wisdom from... UK and other places. Well, I do think it's a it, 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 it's a characteristic in Australia, and it's something that I've noticed. I mean, I've only, only been here four years, and uh, uh, and and I've noticed the the number of times you get asked about what's going on outside of Australia, and and there does seem to be this theory running through a lot of organisations that somebody somewhere has cracked this, that somebody somewhere is doing it better. Uh, 
And the reality of the situation is that that's not the case. So if one more person asks me about best practice in the UK, I think I'll scream. Because that, was, actually, that was my next question. Well, well, well but, 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 but honestly, because, because actually when you look at what the UK has done, I think there's far more to be learned from the mistakes. Um, the rollout of uh, personalization in the UK, the introduction of large-scale IT systems, all of those sorts of things, you look at actually how that worked, they were huge mistakes. So I'd like to do two things. One is to pick up on some of the mistakes, but even before that, why do we allow the narrative to be things were great in the UK or we've got so much to learn from the UK, Mm. not from their mistakes, but from what they've done wonderfully? Why do you think it is that we allow it to become a perverse narrative? Well, I don't think it's peculiar to to Australia, but in, in a sense, what we do is so important. And, and, and the services that you provide and that are being provided to some of the most vulnerable people are so important that that actually we're desperate for an answer. Mm. And I think in that desperation, it's quite tempting and a little lazy to to think that somebody somewhere has cracked it. You know, you always wish somebody's got, you know, ha- has has managed to crack it. And um and the reality is nobody's got this right yet. I mean, just look around you. You know, if you do a tour around Europe, if you do a tour to the States or or anywhere, there's not a country in the world that has cracked this properly. I wonder, too, if there's something in there, too, about really wanting to believe that it's worked because yeah. of the difficulty that so many people are experiencing in implementing this change. If there's just a part of them that's like, well, somebody did it, right? Like, we're not just doing this on our own. Mm. And I think part of the narrative of the NDIS is that it has been trialed elsewhere, that it's evidence-based, and the reality that it didn't work there either mm. would be probably a bit too bleak for most people to face. I don't, I don't know if it's stretching it too far, John, but we're... After a couple of drinks a, a week or so ago, we were talking about a lot about shooting for the ideal yeah. in, in welfare systems, in community yeah. services. Do you want to give us... Give well, there's us- an element of that in, in in what we're discussing, and that's kind of a, a, a progression from what for, for, from what we were talking about. You've got this desperate desire, and I agree with you, Evie, you've got this desire to f- somehow find somebody who's who's got the answer. You know, there is an answer. And actually, the reality of the situation is that there isn't. What What is being done is really, really hard. But then what you're talking about there, Roland, is, 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 is another frustration, which has kind of, I suppose, um, shadowed me throughout my career, which is uh, a lot of what I've done has been dealing with imperfection, has been coming up with a good enough answer um, within a damaged environment, one that's doesn't work properly or is counterintuitive. Um, and what I've found in, in, in particular in human services is this design of the ideal. And I don't know whether, you know, I don't want to get too philosophical, but Plato talked about the ideal chair and you know, the idea that somewhere conceptually there is the perfect chair. And if and a carpenter could eventually make it. Now, that's fine. You know, it's good to have an ideal. But actually, if you design and refuse to actually accept anything that doesn't meet that perfection, then you constantly fail. So if I think about something like an adoption service, and I can remember early on in my career, the fact that we couldn't place kids um, because we didn't have a perfect placement. And yet those kids were in residential homes. And you know they, they mm. weren't getting good outcomes. And when I think about how the NDIA is rolled out and the perfect idea of what needs to happen compared to good enough, um, I, I see failure as a result of that. And, it, and, it, and that does frustrate me. A very significant failure as well. 
Yeah, huge. If you think about um, everything from technology systems and, and, and the design of the ideal as opposed to just making something work. Very early on in my career, I started in child protection. I can remember actually um, having a computer system that never worked, um, and it had 140 kids on the child protection register, right? You could use a Rolodex and it would have worked better. Uh, but we wanted an IT system. And I see that a lot at the moment in, in, in you know, dealing with complexity and dealing with consumer-directed care. Everybody's reaching for this perfect IT solution, whereas actually it's probably a human solution and will make the IT fit later. So I can think of about three examples, probably more in the current disability system in the implementation of the NDIS, where we're shooting for the ideal inappropriately. But I can't say them because I get shot down by the advocates for being politically incorrect. That's not the language they'd use. They, mm. they characterize me as some sort of retrograde dinosaur that wants to take us back to the, the dark ages because mm. I'm not shooting mm. for the ideal. Mm. But if all we do is shoot for the ideal, we're going to miss something in the middle, but, is your point? Well, uh, I'm not sure that's right. I mean, you know, in, in a sense, always have the ideal in your head. Yeah. But don't be afraid to compromise. And I think we need to be braver about the compromise bit. I think we actually need to be braver about just going, you know what, it's going to take a hell of a long time and maybe we'll never get to that point. But at the moment, if we're, if we're only interested in outcomes for these people right now, then there's a series of things we can do that aren't perfect. And yes, it's frustrating sometimes that people say, no, you can't do that because it's not the ideal. But yeah. So there's a couple of things coming up. Did you want to jump in, Evie? What's coming up for me when you're talking about this is I'm wondering if it's linked to um, what we see a lot in the sector, mm. which is not so much shooting for the ideals as shooting for the right thing to do. Yeah. And so we get a lot of questions about, well, what does the NDIA want us to do? What does the policy say we can or can't do? Mm. You know, what can and can't we buy with these funds? And people want really concrete answers, really audit safe answers. And a lot of the time the answer is whatever's reasonable and necessary and whatever's reasonable and necessary is open to interpretation. And so it's frustrating for us sometimes when we see those participant outcomes being blocked by providers who are saying, well, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like the thing we should or shouldn't do when, you know, at least from our perspective or from a different interpretation, it looks like actually the NDIS facilitates a lot more creativity, a lot more flexibility. No, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think actually th this goes a little bit to what we were talking about, uh, about people searching for an answer as mm -hmm. well, um, and an ideal answer. Um, and, uh, certainly in the UK and, and my experience in, in, in Australia has been that, um, again, we think somebody has got the answer. So as a provider, I'm, you know, I'm consistently asked about, well, what does the NDIA think about this? What is their mm. answer? to this yeah, yeah, yeah. and the reality is they don't know either <laughs> you know this is a massive rollout of a hugely complex scheme and we're all kind of you know finding our way including the ndia the yeah. challenge often is that the ndia have probably been um not as forthright about the fact that they don't know they that they feel like they should have an answer and as a consequence i think they've been contradictory through some of this journey so the provider yeah. is still there with a the belief that they have an answer mm -hmm. But all it does for me is reinforce the fact that I think you're right, 
people are looking uh, are quite compliant in this space and that's part of the dna of the uh, the sector really isn't it because you know you have to register you have to be compliant you have to manage risks and you know that encourages that type of approach um, but actually the reality of the situation is you have to play your own game in this yeah. space you know the the most successful organizations i've seen in this in this sector and the ones that really excite me are the ones that that aren't looking for an answer are actually the ones that have said we're going to do this because it's good because it's fun and it's the right thing to yeah. do and and they're brilliant but they're not looking for someone to tell them to do it yeah, yeah, um yeah. and i think that's that's an, you know a, 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 an interesting aspect of this if we just try and be compliant through this process i don't think we'll ever achieve very much mm-hmm. yeah I, I couldn't agree more yeah I wonder if we can move on to the idea of and do some more myth busting around for profits and not for profits. And I remember your entry into the not for profit world quite a few years ago, Evie, when you first in Belgium struck the not for profit organizations. Do you want to talk a bit about um, some of the surprises you experienced? Yeah. So my background before I worked in disability, I worked in sustainable development oh, and okay. I, I first worked for um, an NG. Well, I worked for Procter & Gamble, but we were okay. working on a corporate social responsibility project uh, with an NGO in Kenya. And it was to my amazement when I first entered the space, how competitive NGOs were. Oh, yes. And there was a sense of like, oh, but they're going to get there first. Yeah. I was like, aren't we all trying to solve that problem? Oh, are we non-profit? Uh, well, yeah, to say, exactly. You know? I was just blown away by yeah. the level of competition in reaching a what would have been an amazing outcome. So it's been really funny for me to come into the sector now and see similarly, although I do think the disability sector in Australia has can be very collaborative. Mm-hmm. I think the NDIS has certainly got away in the way of some yes. of that cooperation. Yeah. Um, but it's funny to see then how the non-profits turn against the for-profits and criticize them for exactly the type of things that I think mm. you could easily level at the non-profits well, as well. Isn't it an interesting phrase as well? Because actually, I don't know whether you know this, but not-for-profit is not a phrase that's bandied around a lot in the UK. We don't use it as a phrase. We talk about charities mm-hmm. um, and we talk about private sector. But we don't talk about for-profits and not-for-profits because it's nonsense. It's nonsense that a organization out there, a massive not-for-profit, doesn't make profit. It does. But it's actually perverse in the market because actually what you see very often are it forces behaviors from government as well. When we think of not-for-profits, they think of grants. Yeah. They think of, you know, you don't apply for a, a contract, you apply for a grant. Now, what does that mean? Actually, it's okay to configure something with profit in it. It's about the value mm-hmm. um, uh, within the market that, that, that that's actually really, really important. And I think this distinction between not-for-profits and for-profits is way too crude. I've seen some for-profit organizations deliver fantastic value in this market consistently. And they're really, really good, exciting, innovative. Collaborations between charities and and, and private sector organizations. But the idea that a not-for-profit somehow um, can and does have the moral high ground within this market, mm. I think is is a bit of a mistake. Yeah, and that's what really rankles with me a lot of the time is you, you sometimes get the feeling of, well, we're not for profit. We're here for the mission. So how we get there is not that mm. important. It's like, it's almost like a safety blanket that people have to say, do you know what I'm trying to say? Mm. Yeah, I do. I do. I do. <laughs> but if you, if you look at the, how the market's skewed as well, actually, because when you think about, um, I was surprised by the number of contracts that are issued 
issued from uh, government that are only open to not-for-profits. Yeah. They're not open to for-profit organisations. Originally, the local area coordinator uh, uh, contracts, um, in theory, were open to private sector organisations, but it was blatantly obvious in the way that those con- those um, ITTs, the inv- in- invitations to to uh, tender, were configured that you know private sector organisations were not welcome in that space. Mm-hmm. And we're talking um, about hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of, contracts of millions of dollars worth that. of contracts, absolutely, yeah. that were going out. Now, what does that say to the market? You know, actually, you've got a bunch of organisations there, large and small, which are doing a great job. Don't get me wrong. You know, charities, not-for-profits are doing a fantastic job very often. But actually, you've cut off a huge range of organisations that could could deliver huge efficiencies and deliver things extremely well. They need to be managed. And, you know, and I've seen for-profit organisations that that have social impact as a as a priority and i've seen for-profit organizations that are in it purely to make money and they're you know they're there's some really bad examples but i don't think it's an exclusive club i don't think it's for-profits bad and not-for-profits good this is about doing the right thing in this market so let's finish where we started john what can Australia learn from the UK experience? <laughs> well, again, I, I think strange. people need to go back and look at not just the UK, but the rest of the world and understand the fact that nobody's got any answers to this. You know, this is hard. And actually, if you're going to come up with some solutions here, they're Australian solutions for Australia. And actually, when I look at what, and let's just think about this for a moment when i look at what the national disability insurance scheme is about and i go back to the primary legislation and i look at that no other country in the world has done this and it's awesome it's really really cool what australia is trying to do with that Uh, and sometimes i think we can be a bit glib about you know talking about all of the problems and we've spent a bit of time talking about that but let's not turn find the solution in the uk or in sweden or in the united states or wherever you know if you're going to find a solution to the problems that you're experiencing in australia they're going to be australian okay so john will you pick up the guitar and play us out with a few bars (laughs) seriously folks we're in a proper studio with a guitar and john's gonna do that unfortunately he didn't bring his banjo but we'll settle for second best oh he's tuned as well so that's right <laughs> so, you've been talking to John Baker, Evie Norfolk. This was the final of our initial podcast series. Thank you, John. Thank you, Evie. And thank you to all of our listeners. <laughs> You've been listening to DSC's podcast series, Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations. Roland, Evie and I had so much fun making this podcast, we've already started cooking up series two, along with some other secret projects we're really excited about. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter to keep updated on what's next. Links are in the show notes. See you next year.